I'm Susan Branscom, and this is Leading She. That was just an unbelievable trip, but it was on that trip actually taking my sports bra off um, on the climb with my daughter that I, I felt my breast lump, and it was after that trip that I came back and, and was diagnosed with breast cancer and started going through breast cancer treatment. Dr. Lisa Larkin's professional career has been varied with pursuits in education, positions with large healthcare organizations, as well as being an entrepreneur, having her own physician practice for years. She advises women beginning their careers to have patience and stay open to the career journey of different paths. She gives advice about the importance of choosing carefully the right marriage partner and making sure goals and priorities are aligned. She discusses a major personal health scare, as well as a terrible tragedy, which happened to her as a young woman, which has shaped how she leads. She is a passionate and high-energy leader. Enjoy listening to Dr. Lisa Larkin. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Yes. Let's start by talking about where you grew up, your parents, uh, what area of the country you grew up, siblings. So I'm an East Coast native. Mm -hmm. Um, I am the oldest daughter of uh, a father who was a psychiatrist born and raised in Milwaukee. And my mother was a nurse born and raised in Queens, New York. Mm. And they met, interestingly, in San Francisco when my father was a fourth-year medical student doing a rotation at UCSF. And my mother had taken her first job after nursing school and had moved from New York to San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like they came from different different backgrounds, different backgrounds. Queens and Milwaukee. Right, for right? sure. And, uh, you know, then my father did his residency in Arizona, and then they made their way back to Philadelphia, where he did his uh, additional residency training, and I was born there. Um, grew up on the East Coast, uh, was um, in Philadelphia for several years, and then my father was drafted at the end of the Vietnam War to West Point, where he mm. ended up being a psychiatrist for the cadets for several years. So we lived at West Point for several years, and then moved to Long Island, which is where I spent most of my time. Great. And grew up through high school. Must have been um, different having your father be a psychiatrist, right? Did you ever feel like he was analyzing you? Um, no, <laughs> not really. Um, yeah. You know, that was really something, again, I was uh, young at the time that he was obviously doing his training and starting in practice. And then uh, when we were in Long Island, he was uh, chief of staff of one of the VA hospitals in Long Island and faculty at SUNY Stony Brook. And so it was much more of an academic position. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't really remember the psychiatric part of it very much mm -hmm. at the and time. siblings? Younger sister, three years okay. younger. All right. And uh, she's um, interestingly a school teacher in the school system in Long Island that we both grew up in now and is raising her children actually in the home that we both grew up oh, in, wow. which is which yeah. is really fun to go back um, oh, sure. now and see my yeah. niece and nephew. Yeah. Family now, you're remarried. Uh, you have two children, Sydney and John. I and do. And combined family. Two children. Uh, my daughter's uh, just turned 27 yesterday and is graduating medical school from Mayo this uh, June. My son is 24 um, and two years out of college and is a computer software um, engineer with an international computer software consulting company. I have four stepchildren, kind of mm -hmm. all the way down to 16. So one, one the 16-year-old still at home with us. Mm -hmm. So it's great. Great. And... Um what is uh, Sydney specializing in? She's going to do dermatology. So she just um, has completed her interviews and is just submitting her match list. So she's not sure, you know, match day will come out in about three weeks now. So she's really anxious about where she'll match. Dermatology is very competitive and mm -hmm. she's interviewed at a bunch of places, but she's not sure where she'll end up. End up. And she's getting married soon in June? June right? 4th. Yes, okay. a destination wedding, Santorini, Greece. Wow. So. It's beautiful there. You have a unique perspective on um, gender bias, uh, one in the medical field, not only as a doctor of a large health organization and the gender bias you experience there, but also how women are treated when they seek medical care, uh, that it's not meeting their needs, especially in midlife. Um, you've said that women for years have not been given the time they need for health care during a visit, especially in midlife, and they fall through the cracks that they need more time than the average doctor provides. Tell me tell me about both right. of those things. So, you know, certainly 
Um, you know, there's a lot written and a lot discussed about kind of gender bias in professional women in the workplace, right? And the fact mm-hmm. that even in 2020, women are underrepresented in the business world. Um, and certainly we know that that's the case in academic medical centers as well, which is that despite 50% of medical students being female, you know, as you get up the ranks in academic medical centers, uh, the number of uh, female faculty members who uh continue to advance and become department chair or dean drops down dramatically um, under about 15%, despite 50% women entering medicine. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, and certainly in the last couple years with, you know, the Time's Up and the Me Too movement, there's really been more and more discussion about kind of gender disparity in the workplace and certainly um, unhealthy um, work environments. But I think from my standpoint as a clinician, one of the things that's really gotten missed or talked about certainly much less than the gender bias in the workplace is really how women have been um, categorically um, disadvantaged in terms of the quality of their health care for all of time. And there's so many things that I could talk to you about, um, about how history has done that to women and how really in 2020, um, women are not getting the health care that they need or deserve. And there are many, many, many different aspects of why there's such an issue with that. Um, and it's really one of the reasons that I founded Ms. Medicine mm-hmm. and really have decided that this, in this last segment of my career, which I think is you know, seven or 10 years now, um, that this is really what I want to focus on. My mission is really to um, try to raise awareness of all of the barriers to um, women's health care and really educate physicians and educate uh, consumers, women, um, about being much more active in their health care and an advocate and really seeking out, you know, high quality evidence-based health care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to come back to the first part of that question about gender bias in the medical field as a physician. Um, But you addressed um, the one thing about um, women not getting care they deserve. And I've I've experienced it. I know friends of mine that have experienced it. And it's real. Right. No, it's it's real. I mean, there are, I mean, you know, there's, I, I do several talks on this. And if you actually go back, you know, hundreds of years, you know, the perception of women was the biggest difference that they, you know, the difference between men and women was really just their reproductive organs Mm -hmm. and that women were really just the species that was childbearing. And no one really thought that there might be more significant differences in terms of diseases, the type of diseases, the way that diseases um, present. And it was never even considered that there should be differences in studied. So when Mm -hmm. we look at all of the research that's been done, um, you know, for decades, hundreds of years, really, women were largely excluded from clinical trials. And Mm -hmm. so I, there's one um, example that's so compelling to me that um, I remember my father um, was a physician obviously, was participating in what was called the Physician's Health Study in the 1980s. And I remember him getting uh, boxes of medicine in the mail, and it was a study looking at the benefit of aspirin or placebo in primary prevention for cardiovascular disease. And this was a very significant study that led to lots of data about whether or not people should take aspirin to prevent Mm -hmm. that first heart attack or that first stroke. And do you know there were no women in that clinical trial? None. And so the data was then applied to women without ever actually really starting to think that maybe the data in women might be different. Mm -hmm. And that's just one example of really decades of research that um, we just had the wrong lens. We never actually um, were really thinking about the fundamental difference that women are really different all the way down Mm -hmm. to every cell in their body. And that no, there was never any thought that we might have different diseases or if in diseases such as cardiovascular disease, which has been well studied now, diseases that present in both women and men, that the disease itself would be different in women than it was in men. And not only different, but that their symptoms would be different, the disease itself would be different, Mm -hmm. how we should treat it would be different. Um, And drugs, you know, how they work in women would be different in men. Um, There's some data now that um, in drugs that are taken off the market after FDA approval, um, the the largest reason for that is because of um, post-marketing or post-approval side effects uh, 
determined in women. And, you know, the Ambien situation is really a good example of that, which is it was only years after Ambien was approved and millions and millions and millions and millions of prescriptions did we realize that the dose that was approved, which was 10 milligrams, which was approved in both men and women, was too Mm -hmm. high for women and that women really only needed the 5 milligram dose and that they were having side effects of sedation Mm -hmm. and problems in the morning with the 10 milligram dose. And again, it's amazing because when you think about that, well, why why didn't we have better data about that? It's because women are not um, in clinical trials. Um, and then even thinking about just the cardiovascular disease, you know, we're only right. now really looking at the data to say, wow, cholesterol medications really may not work the same in women. The disease is different. The benefit of the cholesterol medications may not be the same. We just, we've missed this whole decades mm-hmm. of um, research. We really understand so much about healthcare of women um, in terms of basic science and research and mm-hmm. drug development than we do compared to men. And then you add to that really implicit and explicit bias against women when they present with complaints, right? So, you know, for hundreds of years when women had pain, they were, you know, perceived as hysterical, right? And that was actually the language that was used. And that's really carried through even now, which is there's good data that women, when they present to their physician with complaints of pain or fatigue or symptoms that, you know, they, they are much more apt to be told that it's stress or it's, it's dismissed, anxiety really. or it's yeah. dismissed. And we know there's really, there's several books recently published, um, some very good books with a lot of data um, about the fact that, you know, women end up having delay in diagnosis or misdiagnosis um, because of this very um, implicit and explicit bias mm-hmm. that happens in the exam room with patients. And, you know, we really just haven't made made much progress there, which is, you know, and then the last piece of kind of what's happened to women is, you know, there's really issues in healthcare. I think, you know, we all can say that our current healthcare system in the U.S. is really struggling both for the cost is too high, but the way that we deliver care is cumbersome and fragmented and very, um, uh, difficult for patients to access and figure out the pathway. And even just getting drugs prescribed and picking them up at the pharmacy is not even straightforward. And, you know, how how much should things really cost? Um, But one of the things that's happened in all of our healthcare issues is that, um, you know, primary care, um, which we know good quality primary care when it's delivered to patients decreases healthcare costs, right? There's benefit when patients have access to primary care, it keeps them out of the hospital out of the emergency room, we do a better job taking care of them. Um, and what's happened, though, is with the pressure on controlling healthcare costs, primary care providers have largely become employed now in large health systems. And as the pressure to keep, you know, that margin of profit for people to keep for health systems to remain financially viable, it's really put downward pressure on providers to see more and more and more and more and more and more patients. And so the average primary care provider in an employed model in a health system now is really targeted to see 28 primary care patients a day. And I can Mm -hmm. tell you, having been in that model, um, you know, that you know, seven to nine minutes per patient. You have huge documentation um, requirements and you're doing damage control. We're really just taking care of major problems and it does not um, leave time to really do a good job um, taking care of women Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the complex needs of women. And so there's really barriers. Yes, I understand. Uh, You were one of the first faculty at UC in 1991 uh, that did not go to UC yes. and uh, for med school and residency, and you were trained at an East Coast academic center with very different approach, and uh, you were young and female and intense, uh, I can relate to intense, and um, <laughs> who had different ideas. Um, tell me about that. How did being female and being trained differently factor into maybe some challenges there? Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, as a medical student at Yale and really at the University of Chicago as a resident, um, I don't remember um, feeling at the time and, and maybe – Again, it was where I was in training. I don't remember feeling kind of any real gender bias in my training mm-hmm. at all. But it was interesting, you know, coming from um, 
you know, more, I would say, a more liberal environment, certainly a more liberal institution Mm -hmm. um, from Yale. And, you know, coming to the Midwest, which I had never lived in before, and really being at UC in Cincinnati, um, you know, it was the first time that I felt a little bit like a a lot, like a fish out of water. I definitely was, um, you know, more outspoken uh, than most. I was certainly the first female who had not done, faculty member who had not done residency or medical school school there. There really were no female um, mentors at the time at all. Mm -hmm. The few female faculty members that were there um, either were single or married but did not have children. There really was no one that I could look look at in the department at the time for kind of a path of what it looked like to kind of advance in the department Mm -hmm. as a woman. And at the time that I joined, I mean, I was really, I had been married for a couple years. I was really ready to start my professional career, but also ready to have children, Mm -hmm. you know, psychologically. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a very interesting few years before I had my, my first, when I, when my daughter was born, just Mm -hmm. kind of navigating, um, that environment. And, um, it was different for me, for sure. And there was really, um, I can remember, um, Yes, uh, some very clear examples of where, um, you know, being a female married to an orthopedic surgeon, um, you know, was was uh, different, a I different say, experience. Yeah, you probably uh, felt like an outsider. Yeah, I mean, for sure. You were from the East Coast. You hadn't been trained at UC. You were outspoken. And we tend to be nice in the Midwest. And frankly, in Cincinnati, we're so damned polite all the time, you know, and people aren't used to being outspoken. So I'm sure you've got some right, for experience sure. there where for out, sure. being outspoken as a, as a woman for in sure. particular isn't always sanctioned, right? Right, for sure. Yeah. And I was young. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, even then very passionate about my career and very, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it was clearly very ambitious and important to me. Yeah. You began your uh, private practice in 2002 and sold it to a large health organization and went back to the academic side of medicine where, where do you feel like you're most called? Uh, And when I read your information, it's kind of like, is it education? Is it practice? So, you know, I have... Lots I'd love to tell young female physicians about kind of the wonderful career of being a female physician. And one of the things that I wish that somebody had said to me early in my professional career, which was, um, you know, the path of being a female physician in medicine and the journey forward is different than that timeline trajectory is different, that um, your career will still be long and you will have lots of opportunity to navigate and pivot and change. And I really describe my career now as really having four very specific segments, um, all of which have been a little bit different, all of have been really, really exciting. But I can remember early in my career when I was first having children and I was really kind of getting into um, you know, my career and settling in having this very significant fear that if I backed off at all, that I would fail, that no one would take me seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and I, and I really struggled with that tension um, yeah. internally. And I just wish that I had had some mentor because now, mm-hmm. you know, fast forward 30 years later, you know, and, and what I would love my daughter to hear, although she doesn't really right now I think value my opinion all that much she right now. She's navigating. Her, she's navigating her own <laughs> path, um, but you know that that your career is long and that you will have the opportunity to do different things and that you don't have to worry so much at that time when you're trying to figure out having kids early in your mm-hmm. career and, and doing the work life balance thing. Right. But to your question. Um, you know, that's the other greatest thing about medicine for me is that I have really, really, really enjoyed multiple different aspects mm-hmm. of medicine. When I finished medical school, I always thought I would never leave the academic health system, that I would be faculty um, 
forever um, and teach in an academic setting. Um, and for lots of reasons, I could tell you I ended up leaving um, UC in 2002, opened my own practice, mm -hmm. really became an entrepreneur for the first time, built a solo practice over 10 years into a multi-specialty women's health practice, had a vision of doing something much larger, um, really pitched my concept to all of the health systems in Cincinnati, ultimately sold my practice, went back into UC in 2012, this time in the OBGYN department, um, spent four years there designing and opening a the UC Health Women's Center in mm -hmm. Westchester, a very large facility. Um, what, was and the, what was the impetus for that? Really? Uh, for, for leaving or for going back? For for opening the Women's Center. You had yeah. a huge uh, money, uh, there was money behind this. Right. So what was the reason? So my this? practice was really, really going well, my, you know, 10 okay. years um, when I was in private practice. And again, I had built this into five primary care providers, two mm -hmm. gynecologists that I employed. Mm -hmm. But I had a larger vision of really wanting to um, make a larger impact in the community. And at the time, there really wasn't another women's center in Cincinnati. And I really saw how successful it was in private practice and really believed that with collaboration with the health system, we could really scale this to make a much larger impact. And so I really spent a year um, doing pitches at all five of the health systems. I mm -hmm. met with the uh, leadership at all five health systems mm -hmm. um, and really made the decision uh, for lots of reasons to go back into the academic um, system. So this time in the OBGYN department. Um, and you see at the time was really, um, it was when the Health Alliance had kind of separated the right. Westchester Hospital hospital had become part of UC. They had the office building there. They had some space available. They were looking for innovative ideas. Um, and so that's where really they gave me uh, really carte blanche to design the top floor um, of the medical office building attached to the mm -hmm. hospital, which is where I opened the Women's Center, um, a beautiful 26,000 square foot mm -hmm. facility um, to try to, again, as director, build programs to advance the care of women. Mm -hmm. um, and it was complicated. Uh, yeah. When I was there, and ultimately, obviously, in 2016, resigned and mm -hmm. relaunched my private practice again, again. Um, and yeah. then have You're moved back. into this space of now doing Ms. Medicine. Right. Ms. Medicine, talk about the concierge nature of it and... What was behind beginning this? I know you can tell you're very passionate about women's right. health and right. making sure they get the right thing. And so, tell me about this. So, I launched my my practice again in 2016, and when I okay. left UC this time, um, you know, I was a breast cancer survivor, had gone back into academics for four years, was really, my lens was really, you know, this is about the last segment of my career and how do I want to build my practice. And really, part of my issue at at UC was, again, this model of being an employed physician and having to see 28 patients a day, despite all of my administrative and academic teaching responsibilities, um, and really not feeling like I was taking a good care of patients. And so when I left, I really stepped back and said, okay, what model do I think um, you know will best serve my patients for the last segment of my career? And I decided to approach this in something that was relatively new at the time, um, a model called direct primary care, which is when you opt out of insurance and Medicare, and it's a uh, relatively modest cost um, type of primary care practice. Um, and I did that as the basis of the practice. And then for me personally, um, had a segment of my practice, which I knew that really wanted a more high-touch concierge uh, level practice. And so concierge medicine has been around longer than direct primary care. Mm -hmm. MDVIP really, Procter & Gamble was involved in that early on and. MDVIP is now the largest concierge medicine company in the U.S. Okay. and has about 1,000 affiliated physicians. There's a lot of other concierge medicine companies that have um, developed now and a lot of people doing concierge medicine um, independently. But this was a model I launched in 2016, and I can tell you that as a physician – taking care of women, midlife women, doing a lot of menopause, sexual medicine, breast cancer survivorship, a lot of comprehensive primary care. I have a lot of elderly patients. This was a model that has been very successful and has worked very, very well and makes me feel better about the type of health care that I provide for patients. Along the same journey then, Time's Up happens, Me Too happens. I continue to see that even in my practice and when I'm educating physicians across the U.S., OBGYNs and primary care providers, Midlife women's health is completely neglected um, for lots of reasons. And 
women really across primary care, even in concierge models, even in direct primary care, even in traditional employed models, midlife women are not getting the care that they need. I see this day in and day out. And uh, Ms. Medicine then uh, really became my thought um, and idea about how to really take a, you know, high view of how can we really impact women's health care. And so it started with my practice model working really well to provide um, high-quality care to women and realizing that I thought that I could develop a network of my colleagues and physicians, and there aren't a million of us who are doing high-quality women's health, women's primary care largely, that I could network that across the U.S. and form a network of physicians, which is the first pillar of Ms. Medicine, and that's mm-hmm. how I started. So You're licensing these. Right. These are licensing agreements with mm-hmm. other practices. So I have a first, um, set my second location is in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and I will soon have one open in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're on track to have about five in 2020 now. Um, But with that, it's really become very clear that there's lots of other models within Ms. Medicine. So we have a lot of other what we call platforms now to really advance women's health care. And one of them um, that I launched just recently is what we're calling Ms. Med Ed, which is mm-hmm. my educational arm. Mm-hmm. And this is both about consumer education of what they should be thinking about. What Because women just don't know. Like, you don't know what you don't know, right? So, um, you know, educating women about things that they should be asking their physicians about to make sure that they're getting the right care. Um, and then also really taking a step to um, educate primary care providers um, about women's health issues. And so one of the things I'm passionate about uh, the North American Menopause Society, as you said, I'm on the board. Um, it's it's really my home base organization. These are the national thought leaders in the field. They are my tribe. We all view mm-hmm. women's health the same way. Um, but, you know, our annual meeting is the most amazing educational meeting, I would say, uh, of any professional meeting, but you're not going to get the general primary care provider to go for four or five days to attend just a menopause women's health meeting, right? So my model for Ms. Med Ed is really to take women's health education locally, back to the consumer, make it easy to access in-person events, and then ultimately podcasts and virtual education materials so Mm -hmm. that the average primary care provider who really is struggling to provide women's health care and really hasn't had the education um, can access it more easily. Um, And so launched the Ms. Med Ed arm in um, uh, January and February. And then we have several other platforms that we're working on now, Mm -hmm. including kind of Uh, affiliations with health systems now that Mm -hmm. we're working on to kind of, again, grow our reach in terms of improving women's health care. You know, reflecting on some of the things you're saying about women in midlife, and it's not only gender bias when women come into health care, but there seems like there's ageism, too, that we're just not getting the care we need, right? So, so absolutely. I mean, there are so many. I mean, I I can talk about all of the different reasons that uh, women really aren't getting the health care they mm-hmm. need. Um, and ageism absolutely like plays old, into that. Female, right? It's as, just like, eh, as well. Yeah, right? We'll give her seven uh, minutes today. N- no question. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, I mean, I, I, I lecture about um, the Women's Health Initiative and hormone replacement therapy all the time. And, you know, I, I tell everyone that, you know, my professional career really has been defined by what's happened with the data regarding hormone therapy and the Women's Health Initiative and how it's all evolved. Um, and that really, I will tell you, there's great data about how that study and the way that that was reported in 2002 in the media and the dramatic decline in prescribing of hormone therapy and the confusion that both women and practitioners, clinicians have from 2002 until now, right, 18 years later, Mm -hmm. there's still this residual confusion and really barriers to clinicians even considering hormone therapy. And so what we now know um, is that in 2020, the vast minority of women who are having terrible vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats Mm -hmm. related to menopause, 
are ever getting treated, right? I mean, we know that there's just a complete neglect. Physicians aren't comfortable. Consumers are afraid. There's just incorrect mm-hmm. information out there. Um, and it's just one of the areas that women really aren't getting adequate care at all. Yeah. And it seems like there's a negative uh, aspect or a negative view of bioidentical estrogen to treat. Right. Most to treat is like, oh, I don't want to take that. I'll get breast cancer. Right. right. So that's exactly correct. And, yeah. and um, right, the the hormone issue and, you know, women are afraid of breast cancer. And actually physicians are afraid of giving hormones because yep. of the breast cancer risk. But it's a complete misunderstanding of the magnitude of the data. What I, when I, I And I'm a breast cancer survivor and mm-hmm. I do a lot of education about evidence-based breast cancer risk assessment. So helping women understand what their individual risk is compared to the population and understanding lifestyle things that they should be doing to lower their risk and talking about breast density and mm-hmm. enhanced breast cancer screening, right? Um, but what in those lectures, what I really talk about is that a woman's risk of developing breast cancer is largely her underlying genetics and reproductive factors and her weight and her biometrics and where she is in menopause. Um, And that's what really drives your breast cancer risk. When you look at hormone therapy, particularly certain types of hormone therapy and doses of hormone Mm -hmm. therapy, the question you have to ask is, what does that do to change an individual woman's breast cancer risk? And I have a slide that I say, you know, is it like adding gasoline to a fire? I mean, is this, is hormones just causing your breast cancer to grow? Or is it like a drop of water in an ocean? And it's much more like a drop of water in an ocean. And I really, in practice, talk all the time to women who come in saying to me, I'd never take that terrible hormone stuff because it's going to give me breast cancer. Right. And I say, mm-hmm. well, how many drinks of alcohol do you have a day right. or a week? There's only there, because yeah. the magnitude of impact that alcohol consumption mm-hmm. um, above three drinks a week has is significantly higher than the risk of taking, of, of taking hormone estrogen. therapy. And so you have to have the right conversation with women about mm-hmm. it. But, but the fear um, has really translated into women not getting adequate care. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I agree. I see it. Um, Tell me about your hike of Mount Kilimanjaro, March of 2014, right. and what you discovered and uh, what what, uh, what changed. Right. So, you know, we all have very clearly defining moments in our life. So that was a very um, pivotal time in my life. I was um, in the middle of a divorce. I was separated from my husband. Mm -hmm. Um, I had just opened the UC Health Women's Center. I was really busy with that um, and had really made the decision. um, My son was a freshman in college at the time. My daughter was a junior in college, that that was the perfect opportunity for us Mm -hmm. Um, because they had a longer Christmas break to do really a three-week trip to Africa. So uh, my two college-age children and I went to Africa. We Mm -hmm. hiked Kilimanjaro, climbed Kilimanjaro over um, eight days, which was an unbelievable experience. We did a three-day safari after that. And then we went into rural Kenya um, and worked uh, with a nonprofit that's actually based here in Cincinnati called Soteni, um, and worked in one of uh, the outreach clinics there doing – my daughter was working on a project doing um, HIV prevention in the community. And mm-hmm. my son and I were working in the clinic seeing patients. Um, and that was just an unbelievable trip. But it was on that trip actually taking my sports bra off um, on the climb with my daughter that I, I felt my breast lump. And it was mm-hmm. after that trip that I came back and, and was diagnosed with breast cancer mm-hmm. and started going through breast cancer treatment. Mm, I'm sorry. Prognosis is good. I assume you went, you came through it. Well, so it was a, you know, I I actually had quite a large tumor and multifocal disease in my breast, and mm. you know, had it, it was larger than we wish that it was, but had very good care and good treatment. And I'm five years out now, so that's great. Good and for you. Yeah. Certainly a transition to being a patient. And, you know, I, I, was, I when I lecture too, I say all the time, you know, now I'm actually a patient. I, I am a patient exactly like the patients I treat. I'm a midlife woman with chemotherapy-induced menopause and female sexual dysfunction, and I'm a cancer <laughs> survivor. So, like, you know, I'm, I'm living, living my patient yeah. population. That's yeah. right. And that was my next question. As a patient with de- breast cancer, cancer. How did you see the healthcare system differently than as a doctor and what did you learn? Yeah, so um, up until having breast cancer, um, I really had had 
virtually no health conditions at all. I was on no medication, and I, again, still viewed myself as healthy and young, right? I had just mm-hmm. climbed Kilimanjaro, and, you know, that's I, – I talk to patients about that all the time, which is whatever um, point in life you are as a – you, you go from being an adult who's healthy to being a patient, and that can happen in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't have to be a cancer diagnosis. You know, it can be the first time you you have diabetes and you're taking a medication or even just being on blood pressure meds. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you have to have follow-up visits and your sudden, you know, the lens that you view yourself through mm-hmm. changes very dramatically. And certainly, you know, the cancer treatment that I had was very aggressive and kind of adapting to really seeing myself as a patient was a huge transition. Mm. And the transition, and I think, you know, in the cancer survivor community, we all talk about this, right? You're you're always a survivor, right? Like that that actually never goes away. You're, you know, you, you mm-hmm. live as being a cancer survivor. And, right. um, you know, and there definitely are long-term consequences and symptoms that I still have related to my mm-hmm. therapy that, um, you know, are, are not perfect that you used to live with. Um, but I think you know, and again, in addition to all that, as a physician, um, I think it not that I was not empathetic before. I, I think I I think I was, but I think again, it, it really I can talk very clearly with patients mm-hmm. about what it's like to get a breast MRI, and yeah. you know, I, I have many um, patients who come to see me uh, with a new breast cancer diagnosis, yeah. kind of for guidance about navigating that, and and that's a patient population, obviously, that I have a lot of experience with, and mm-hmm. I I think that patients find my personal experience yeah. a little bit helpful, because um, you know I have some insights, kind of a, about the radiation mm-hmm. tissue stuff that I had and what mm-hmm. to expect and what mm-hmm. to expect in terms of the fatigue getting better after chemotherapy mm-hmm. and just some really personal um, things. And I think, you know, I was in the menopause space and the sexual medicine space um, before my own cancer diagnosis. But again, we know that those are areas that we really need to help cancer survivors. And I'm very aggressive with kind of managing mm-hmm. them because um cancer survivors, and it's not all breast cancer survivors, really, again, have gaps in care um, that are really just not not acceptable, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm sure it uh, made you an even better doctor, I would think, because you've had the experience. Well, I don't, I don't know better, but I think... It sounds like you you're know, pretty I can, good. So, no, I mean, thanks. You're sweet. You know, um, but, uh, you know, but you're I, talking I, to patients like, hey, I've had this. I know right. what it's like. For sure. Here's what you can expect. For sure. For right? sure. Yeah. For sure. And, uh, right. Yeah. Um, so you discover the lump uh, when you're hiking in Mount Kilimanjaro. At that time, you're going through a divorce. And you've said that there is an imbalance of power in a marriage, uh, a marriage or a relationship. What advice would you give to young women who are ambitious and career-minded uh, about marriage, having children, whose career comes first? So, right. No, no one gets married thinking that they're going to get divorced or want to mm-hmm. get divorced. And certainly um, when I got married the first time, you know, I never expected or hoped that I would get divorced. But clearly one of the kind of ongoing issues that I had with my first husband was really exactly that, which is kind of whose career was the priority and how to navigate the complexity of two careers, two physicians, um, mm-hmm. having children, um, you know, it was a bumpy road for me, frankly. Um, you know, my mother, I diagnosed with lung cancer when I was pregnant with my son. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was caring. She lived with us after he was born and caring for her and young children. And again, still really wanting to have a career. Um but again, kind of this imbalance because my husband's career at the time, you know, was clearly the primary breadwinner and, you know, was making, you know, in terms of an income 10 times more than what I was making as a primary care provider. Mm-hmm. And so it was really kind of assumed that his career really took priority. Took and there really wasn't kind of this discussion about the fact that despite the that my income was less at the time, that it was equally as important to me and that we needed to figure out a way to share some of the responsibilities. Um, and it just, there, there were multiple kind of points over the course of our 25-year marriage where it just, it really kind of never got better for me, which mm-hmm. is, um, and, and I wasn't, I I don't think I was strong enough in my own understanding um, 
uh, of the fact that it was okay for me to say that even though I was earning less, that my career was equally as important. And I think it really wasn't until I left UC the first time and started my own practice the first time around and really was very successful doing that and really learned that I could be successful, that I started to have my own self-confidence that and mm -hmm. the realization, I think, that how important my career was to me and how much I wanted to actually have a larger impact. And I think that's really what ultimately, you know, led to the final decision for my husband and I to my husband mm -hmm. at the time and I had a divorce. Um, so and advice. I can tell you the second time around yeah. is, you know, uh, is a completely different story yeah. for me in terms of that balance. And so for young people, young women entering the world, I mean, I think, I think mm -hmm. the, the choice of your life partner is really, really important. important. And that those discussions about and self-awareness about how important your professional career is and what really you value and how you're going to navigate all mm -hmm. of those big decisions is really important. And I, and I don't think that I actually did a very good job of that early on. And I think, you know, I wanted children so much and I really was trying to figure it out. And I didn't have a great support network. I didn't have a great mentorship network. And mm -hmm. and frankly, being in Cincinnati, um, you know, again, um, I remember uh, my children were little being involved in the Indian Hill Mothers Group. And, you know, I was really the only person that was really in that group at the time who was working full time. And I remember, you know, the other moms who liked me, and there many of them are still my friends today, you know, they didn't really understand what I was doing at the time. So I didn't really fit in there either, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I didn't really fit in at UC exactly. Right. I was a little too liberal and outspoken. <laughs> I didn't really fit in in the Indian Hill Moms Group. I was yeah. really trying to navigate this. And you know, so again, my, my advice would just be, you know, um, choose, be self-aware well. and choose your spouse, your your spouse, your your life yeah. partner wisely. Yeah, um, I would agree. Yeah, uh, you worked for a large uh, academic healthcare company uh, in our area from ninety one to two thousand two, eleven years. What what is the gender bias you saw there around the treatment of females, um, work culture, yeah. uh, misogyny? Tell me stories, uh, what, yeah, what you saw, what I, would you say? You know, I don't know that it's helpful to really be very specific, but, you no, know, we, we know even now in 2020, again, as I said, that that again, in the venture capital startup world, in the business world, in the academic medical system world, there still is really um, gender bias against mm -hmm. women. And yep. I I really do believe now because of Me Too and Time's Up and Time's Up Healthcare that there's a lot of work and much, much, much more awareness of um, the fact that we really, there is so much explicit and implicit bias, and then it really has impacted women and their career trajectories um, that we need to really do active initiatives to really correct that. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, without really giving lots of stories, um, there's no question that the first, my fir the first segment of my career at UC, which was 1991 to 2002, and then even the second, 2012 to 2016, um, that in the environment that I was in, that being a female in a leadership position, um, you know, women were treated differently, mm -hmm. and that there again at during those years, and it's a little bit better right now, a little bit, um, in terms of the number of department chairs, the number of women in leadership positions, even above me, were very, very few. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, I had a very large vision for what I hope to accomplish with the Women's Center. I really... Um, really saw a very large need and a large vision. And I can tell you, I, I think people there would tell you that, you know, I was really working the system to try to really push change and push innovation mm -hmm. and really advance things very important. And I can tell you that I think being female was a barrier in terms of how much acceptance there was right. to pushing for change. Um, and, you know, I, there were some stories that I certainly could <laughs> but I think doesn't it, you know it's not helpful, maybe, right? But, um, but, but, it's, but it was, it was really the it, it, it was it. part of the right. reason that I ended up uh, making the decision to, to resign, um, yeah. which is that I I 
didn't feel I was going to be able to be successful in advancing the vision of the Women's Center and really with the breast cancer and the divorce and realizing that, you know, life can be very short. I Mm -hmm. wanted to make a very specific and conscious decision of what to do with the last segment of my career and made the decision to leave and again, reinvent myself and reinvent what I was doing, which is, again, is this now very exciting segment of my career. Yeah, it is exciting. You've had a wonderful career and and all the different changes, everything you've done. It's just been fascinating for me to research you. you. Um, Speaking of life is short, um, 32 years ago, you experienced a terrible tragedy. Uh, You were with your father in Chicago and there was an incident. Uh, Tell me about that. Tell me how, what happened. Uh, You said it changed how you view your life and how you lead? You know, I think that probably was the most defining moment of my entire life. Um, So, you know, up up until that point, so I was a fourth-year medical student, um, and, you know, my parents had divorced, and so that was a bumpy time. Um, But, you know, again, uh, not huge tragedy, certainly hadn't had illness, hadn't had a close family member die. And I was... um, graduating medical school, had matched at a great program, was um, engaged to be married, was really everything was um, bright and sunny Mm -hmm. in my future. Um, And I was with, my father was with me. Uh, We were looking at apartments for me to start my residency in Mm -hmm. Chicago. And we really were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, it was 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning, a sunny April day in Chicago. We were in a nice part of town and in an apartment that we had just looked at. And um, a man came into the office and started stabbing a woman that I couldn't see, but my father could see. And he ended up jumping up to try to help the woman um, saw what was going on, told me to exit. The person we were with pulled me out a fire door. And by the time I ran around the building to come back in, my father had been stabbed to death. And he was one of three people that was killed. Mm -hmm. Um, A third-year, a first-year law student was killed by the same guy uh, coming down the stairs, completely not even in the office at the time this happened. Um, And, you know, that was my father was my best friend and my confidant. And, you know, that was... I mean, I describe that as being, you know, half of me died the day Mm. that he died. And that was this huge, um, pivotal moment. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as I've gone on in my life, that's been a long time ago now, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that experience of a life is short so my motto always has been you know work hard live work hard play hard live thoughtfully (laughs) um but also is you know really this lens that you know my my father clearly very clearly and deliberately saved my life um without question he absolutely saved my life um you know he died in my arms i couldn't save him it was he would he had been stabbed multiple times um but you know, it's certainly, you know, I was left here for some reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it certainly informs or impacts the way that I view what I'm supposed to be doing with the rest of my life. And yeah. so I think even as a breast cancer survivor, I sometimes have people say, you know, why do you still work so hard? And yeah. I still work so hard because, A, I love what I do. Yeah, and taking care of taking yeah. care of patients is a privilege, but I also feel like I have more left to do. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure you do. Um, and, you know, the, the thing about the incident, the tragedy, is your dad was the kind of man who went to the rescue of yes, the he woman. Did. He saved your life, but he wasn't he, a guy that no. ran. He no. went toward the woman that was being stabbed, right? Yes, That's no. who he was. He, he absolutely you know, did, so. and actually at the trial, which I didn't even realize until the trial, but there was a courtyard outside this office, and there was a security guard that oh. had seen the guy killing the woman who he was after. And then my father, and at the trial, he really talked about the fact about how my father really got in there and was trying to save the woman mm-hmm. and really yeah. lost his life at the same time. No, yeah. he, he he definitely died trying to help mm-hmm. her and to save me. Right. What a, what a, uh, what a hero. Uh, but yeah. what, a, what a shame. He was only 51 was young. Ooh. Well, let's uh, let's turn to a last question for you. Um, that's a grim story, but there's a lot I can tell you've learned from it. You yes. Know. Um, where do you hope Ms. Medicine will be in five years, ten years? What's the plan? What What's your hope there? Oh gosh. So I'm I'm 
so excited about it, actually. It's really been um, so exciting to mm-hmm. actually see kind of these affiliated practices, people start to sign on to that and to really go well. Um, and the uptake of both the consumer and the physician education arms. So so I've done um, two of my consumer events, actually three in Florida already. And I just had my first physician education event here in Cincinnati. And I had 100 clinicians at this event uh-huh. in Cincinnati and had 50 uh, consumers at each of the events that I did in Florida. And the feedback and the engagement from women um, was so incredible that it makes me so further convinced that I'm on the right track um, mm-hmm. in terms of really trying to have an impact on care of women, right? So, and not ever really having done a startup like this before, right? So I've I've run my practice a couple times here now. I know how to run my own practice, but uh, you know, being in the st- real startup space now, learning how to scale a business. And it's not a consumer product business and kind of really start to look for funding and how to actually do this. I mean, I've just, I've learned, I mean, more than I ever imagined about how much I don't know about all the things that I didn't know, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But what I also have learned is that there's huge opportunity. And as I've gotten into this, there are so many of these other pillars and initiatives that I suddenly can see in um, collaborative organizations, right? I just did an event in New York City for Healthy Women, which is an amazing nonprofit. It's really all about advancing um, evidence-based consumer education for women. And they have an amazing education platform, right? And like there's just opportunity to do so much to marry the clinical care delivery models that I'm working on with kind of education platforms. And, and I, I really hope in five or 10 years that on some larger scale, I'm touching more lives, consumers, maybe just by education, but also in clinical care delivery in more practices across the U.S. where there's actually clinicians that can focus and do a better job with improved care delivery models taking care of women. Because again, the need is really there. And I'm telling you, when I when I talk to women and I start giving these presentations and they look at me like, I don't understand. I have access to doctors. I think my doctor's good. And like, I don't like, why are you the first person that's telling me this? Like, I I don't know. I've been to three doctors with this complaint, and I don't understand. They didn't seem to know. And I get, you know, consults here in the city of – and again, it's not that doctors are bad. It's that there's barriers to actually physicians providing the care, be it too many visits per day, not enough education. I mean, there's just so many barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody's trying to do a good job. And again, it's about – hopefully with Ms. Medicine, helping create a path where there's less barriers and that we can touch more lives in terms mm-hmm. of improving care for women. Right. I can't wait to watch. Thanks. Yeah. Lisa, thanks for coming Thank in. You. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Follow us on Instagram at Leading She and visit our website, leadingshe.com where we have many great ideas for women leaders.